Scripture reading this evening will be found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, following through verses 14. Isaiah 7, 10 through 14. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, thank you for being with us for tonight. We're always very happy that we can be together. And uh, it's been a wonderful day and very grateful for all the blessings of the day and very happy that we can come together tonight and sing these beautiful songs. It is well with my soul. And not a very thoughtful, penetrating song. And uh, the way you sang it tonight was such an encouraging and uplifting way. And I'm thankful for Jonathan and his leadership and for you and your participation. Thank you for being with us tonight. For those who are following along line on the internet and other venues that we have, we're happy to have you as well. Thank you for your interest, and I wish you were here, wish you could be here, so that we could all worship together and be together. I look forward to being back with you Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. In the auditorium class, we're studying the book of Psalms. We've just introduced a study of Psalms, and we've looked at something of the structure of Psalms and something of the background and the history of Psalms. We looked at Psalm 117 and 150. And we'll look at Psalm 8 this coming Sunday night. It'll be a psalm that talks about God, the maker of heaven and earth. And then we'll look at Psalm 29 and Psalm 104, which are psalms praising God as he works through nature. And these are wonderful studies of the Word of God, and I hope that you'll be able to be with us at that time. It's always about this time of the year that we begin to think about the life of Christ. There are certain things that I preach every year. I preach about the items of worship every year. I devote a sermon to that every time. And then there are certain things like the life of Christ that I talk about each year, and I want to do that again tonight. And I want to talk about it from the standpoint of the historical perspective of Jesus and what that means for us tonight. And I hope that you'll have your Bible and follow along with me as I am recounting some of the situations, the the facts of the life of Christ, some of which I'm sure you already know. Some of it maybe you do not know, but it will certainly cause us to go away with a greater appreciation for the life of Jesus. This is coming up on the time where Orthodox and conservative Jews will be respecting the Passover. And then there'll be a lot of denominational Christians looking at this idea of Easter, and that'll mean a lot to them. But what is the truth of the matter? Christ was born during the days of the Roman Empire. B.C. is referenced to before Christ. A.D. is referenced to the year of our Lord. Historically speaking, historians have tried to change that to B.C.E. before the Common Era. And A.D.E. before or after the Lord or the year of the Common Era. Whether it be A.C., A.B., Uh, B.C. or A.D., doesn't really matter. Christ was born during the time in which Rome was the darling of the world. It was Augustus who had actually been ruler and emperor during the time of the reign 
his reign and uh, that of Christ's birth. Julius Caesar had already been assassinated in 44 B.C. It was Octavian who would later get the title Augustus, which means between God and man. Rome had a powerful control upon the world in which Jesus was born. Rome controlled Palestine from 63 B.C. all the way through. Herod the Great served as a king of Palestine during that period of time, from 40 to 4 B.C., and then Herod died. His kingdom was divided among his children, and the most notable one, of course, would be Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who, in turn, would execute John the Baptist. And he would be the one who would treat Jesus so terribly during the days of his persecution. Roman rule really chafed and galled the Jews. Ever since the days of the Exodus, they did not want to be under any foreign domination, though they were. It was 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They had returned under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And they had not really been under captivity for those years until the time of the Hasmonean dynasty and the Roman dynasty. Roman procurators located in Jerusalem. They were the governing rulers of this part of the world at the time. They later moved their headquarters to Caesarea on the seacoast. But they left a contingent of Roman centurions and soldiers there in Jerusalem. Every time there was a festival of the Jews or every time there was some kind of holiday that the Jews would uh, observe, they would move and come back to Jerusalem to make sure that everything was peaceable and that everything was going according to the way they should. And that's why you have Pilate in Jerusalem at the time of the Lord's crucifixion. Another thing the Jews hated was Roman taxation. And Rome had heavy taxes upon the people. As long as you paid the taxes and kept the peace, Rome pretty well left you alone. There were people who bought the right to collect the taxes. They were called publicans. Publicans would purchase the right to collect the taxes. They would collect those taxes, and they would always charge more. And what they would charge more would be what they put in their pocket. And for that reason, the Jews looked upon them as traitors, and they were on the lowest social scale of the Jewish people. All these particular issues fanned the, fanned the flame of the Messiah. And they were looking for someone who would come and restore the glory that they once had. And they knew and read about the glory of David and the great days of Solomon, in which the temple was in Jerusalem and had been built by Solomon, dedicated to God. And they wanted to go back to that. They wanted a national hero. And in so doing, they were looking for a military, political-type leader that would restore Israel to its great former days and they would have this great opportunity to live under the guise of this great national hero. By the time you get to AD 60, 26, Peter's up on the day of Pentecost preaching, and he's telling them that Jesus has come, that he's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he'd performed the miracles, that he lived among them, that he died on the cross, was buried and resurrected, and in turn was ascended, ascended back to God. The Jews had rejected him, though some 3,000 on the day of Pentecost had been obedient to the gospel. 
And they in turn repented of their sins, were baptized for the remission of their sins, and added to the church of the Lord. Well, our task is going to be what happened between 4 B.C. and 26 A.D. What happened by the time of the death of Herod and then the time of Peter standing on the day of Pentecost giving that great and inspired sermon. That's our purpose. That's what we're going to look into. And we're going to study some of the significance of that. Now before I go too far into the life of Jesus, I want us to notice from John chapter 1, we often think about Jesus being born at Bethlehem of Judea. And the Bible does say that he was born then. But we get the idea that Jesus' life began in Bethlehem of Judea. But in John chapter 1, he makes it very clear that Jesus has always existed and that he did not begin on that occasion. His earthly life did begin. But with regard to Jesus and his divine nature, he has always existed. And this is the point that John is making in John 1 and verse 1. And as you look at John 1 and 1, it does read something like the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. It says here, in the beginning was the Word. Now he uses this English word, they translate that, this is the logos. This word has a rich history behind it. It is a word which has various meanings throughout time. But in John's day, he said, this is God's presentation of himself. This is the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Word was with God. It's a preposition which is showing the relationship between the Word and God. If you'll notice, he says there in verse 1, the Word was with God. And the Greek preposition there is conveying the idea that Jesus was face to face with God, divine in his nature. In verse 14 of this particular chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this divine one became man. Now the King James Version used the word Godhead, and it sort of stuck people started using and thinking about the Godhead. In fact, the word is found in Acts 17 and 29 and Romans 1 and verse 20. And the word is to convey the idea that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, these three divine personalities and the one Godhead. Newer translations come along and translate it divine being. I don't know which would be better. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, there in the Great Commission, there all three are described for us. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every living creature. Mark's view of it in 16, Mark 16, 15, and 16 is telling us of the all authority which Christ had, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all three are referenced in that particular passage, and that's Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. So the fact that Jesus came in the flesh, the fact that Jesus was the Logos, the fact that Jesus was man, but yet was also God, is hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's always been difficult for us to really understand and come to know this concept, as important as it may be. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, there the Hebrew writer talks about this, and he uses language that helps us. 
And so I turn to Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now what he's saying there is, God in the long ago spoke in many different ways. He didn't speak in just one way, and he didn't reveal his revelation in just one particular way. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also has created the world. The Hebrew writer gives you some insight into the divine nature of Christ, that Christ was the active agent in creation. Paul makes mention of that in Colossians chapter 1 and the verses verse 16 and 17. But it's verse 3 that's got my attention. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, he's telling us that he's the exact image of God. He's the expressed image of his glory. He uses words like the radiance of the glory of God. That's what he is. He upholds all things by his power. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So when you look at Christ and you're studying about Christ, you're really studying about God. You're studying about God in the flesh. And it's a hard concept to get our minds wrapped around, I understand. I struggle with it myself. But yet there's only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord He is one. But there are three distinct personalities in this Godhead, in this divine being. And we're studying the earthly life of one of these divine beings, this divine being, Jesus, the Son of God. Now don't get the idea that you have three gods. You have one God. And don't get the idea that God the Father is over God the Son, and God the Son is over God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, a passage I referred to this morning, voluntarily relinquished the sovereign independence which he had. That's the best way I know how to explain it. And came in the form of a man and was made in the likeness of men. And so he voluntarily did this, submitting himself under the authority of God. But don't get the idea that there's God the Father who's above and then Jesus is a lesser God and then the Holy Spirit's a lesser God than Jesus. That was a heresy that came long ago, and Paul refutes that in the book of Colossians. The Bible is telling us of the greatness of God, the glory of God, and the image of God. So I don't want us to think that because we talk about Bethlehem of Judea, that that's where Jesus began. Oh, I know his earthly life began there. But any discussion about Jesus has got to include his divine nature which has always existed. Jesus was never created. Jesus was an active agent in the creation. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that were involved in the creation process. Now, I made mention of Philippians chapter 2. I think I'll go back to it again tonight. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, I made mention of this passage this morning. Have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Well, this is one of my favorite passages, as you might already recognize, and it's a Bible passage which is emphasizing the divine nature of Jesus, the Son of God. He was always divine. That divinity now has come to be or to dwell with us. And that's an amazing thing. When the angel comes, Gabriel comes to Joseph, which we'll talk about a little later, he says his name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That boggles the mind. If you think about God has now come to dwell among us. And we'll talk about the greatness of that particular moment. Right now I'm beginning to think about a man by the name of Zacharias. And I find him in Luke chapter 1. And Zacharias was a good man, him and Elizabeth, though they were older and advanced in age. They were very faithful, godly Jewish people. Zacharias was a priest after the order of Aaron. And so was Elizabeth for that matter. David had divided the priesthood up into 24 courses or orders. What the priest would do would cast lots. And in casting lots, they would decide which order would serve the incense table before in the temple. Uh, this incense, the burning of incense, of course, was before the curtain, the veil, which was the most sacred place for the Jewish people beyond the veil, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. An acacia wood chest overlaid with gold, the lid described as the mercy seat, within the Ark was Aaron's rod that had budded. There was an omer of manna. There were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was the most sacred of the furniture of the pieces that were in the tabernacle, now the temple. But before that is this altar of incense. And it was the highest privilege that an ordinary priest could have to be able to serve his week after casting of lots that fell on his course to be able to serve his week in administering that duty. It was a great privilege. Some priests would serve all their lives and never have the opportunity. And Zacharias is given the opportunity. While administering this great uh, work of a priest, under the Old Testament dispensation, you understand, the angel of the Lord comes to him, his name is Gabriel. And it shocks him, he's standing beside the altar. And he said, you're going to have a child. And he said, it's not going to be just any normal child, any ordinary child, but you're going to have a child. Of course, Zacharias didn't really believe the angel. And so because he did not believe the angel, the angel struck him dumb, which is a kind of chastening of Zechariah. In order to help him understand, a priest that would learn later, that all things are possible with God. He served his week of service in the temple. And then he goes home to Elizabeth, and there it's not long before she conceives and she's going to have a child. In this particular instance, we see that the angel is describing the wonderful relationship that this child would have to the Messiah. I'm going to turn to Malachi, Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book of our Old Testament, the last prophetic book. 
And in verse 5 and 6, he tells us, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers of their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, the Jews were very familiar with this prophecy of Malachi, and they were looking for the Elijah that was to come. And here the angel is telling Zacharias and Elizabeth, this is going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is going to be the child that would um, fulfill that. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, you see something of the amazement that they would have over this particular matter. And as you do, you soon see how Elizabeth now is very concerned about it, and Elizabeth is very much a part of God's divine plan, though it was Zacharias who did not actually believe the angel as he should have. And I'm looking for Luke chapter 1, and I'm looking at about verse 17. And there it says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord of people, a people prepared. Well, he's talking about Jesus there. And he says, now this is going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi that you and I read. He's going to come in the power and in the person of Elijah. And it's going to be an amazing thing. And now a priest who served the Lord all his life, a righteous man, has come to learn that with God, nothing is impossible. Elizabeth is going to have a child, but it's not just going to be any child. Now, the story goes a little further when we learn about Mary. Mary is a young maiden living in the northern portion of Galilee in a place called Nazareth. She is not wealthy. She has no particular name with regard to her other than being from the family of David. And in this particular instance, God has chosen her that she would be the one who would actually bear this only begotten son. Now, all of these people, if you'll think about it, were concerned about Rome, as I mentioned. They were concerned about how Rome had control over their lives and what Rome was doing to them. In fact, in Galilee, the people in Galilee hated Rome. I don't know what Elizabeth's attitude was in the matter. I am not, it's not revealed to me. Perhaps she thought of these particular matters as well. Perhaps she reflected on the hope that was Israel's, that one day that there would be a Messiah that would be born. Little did she know that God would choose her to be the bearer of the one who would save the sins of mankind. A question that comes to my mind Luke chapter 1, why did God pick Mary? Mary was not a special person other than she had a righteous life. The Old Testament writer in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, 28, tells us about the worthy woman. And there it tells us and describes what a worthy woman is. And one of the descriptions given to us about the worthy woman in Proverbs 31 is that her children rise up and call her blessed. Because mothers are special, and mothers have a special place in our heart because they've had a special place in our life. It was a cartoon strip by Peanuts here. Charlie Brown says, 
everyone needs someone to love them, to trust them, to care for them, to support them, to laugh and cry with them. Lucy says, that's a lot of people. Snoopy says, or one wonderful mother. Well, that's the kind of mother that the Lord had. Luke chapter 1, 42 and 48 says that she was blessed. God had picked her. No doubt he picked her because of her character. Now, I'm a little concerned about the idols which people make for themselves. Boys like baseball players and football players, at least they used to when I was growing up. And uh, I don't know what they look up to as far as idols and heroes of life are today. I don't know what kind of idol that a girl would look up to and want to be like. I rather suspect that it's a tragic thing with regard to the heroes that girls have to emulate and look at. This world, this entertainment world, this hedonistic world. Why don't young girls look to Mary and see what a wonderful woman she was? How chaste and virtuous she was. That this was the woman that God picked. God didn't have to pick Mary, but he picked her because of her quality. He picked her because of her character. She was a godly woman, Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. That means she believed in God, and she believed in the power of God, Luke chapter 1, 31 and 32. The angel comes to her, Gabriel, and says, you've been chosen. You're going to have a child, chapter 1 and verse 34. And that was the case with regard to Zacharias and Elizabeth, but it's also the case with Mary. But Mary questions, she says, well, how can these things be? Now, she's not doubting like Zacharias did. She's just wondering how. How can this take, this take place? I've never been married. And so in the turn, she is accepting what God is saying to her. She's not doubting like Zacharias did. Now, she was a person who was submissive to the divine will of God. The point that I'm making is, what kind of woman was she? She was a young woman. She was a woman who was godly. A godly woman who believed in the power of God. A real example for young women today to follow and consider. Her betrothal was with Joseph. Joseph was a just man. How are these things going to work out? If I'm going to have a child because of God's blessing me, how am I going to work this out with regard to Joseph? What is his reaction going to be? She must have been a brave woman and a courageous woman in order to accept these particular matters. Forty days after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph take the baby to the temple, there for rites of purification. There's a prophet there by the name of Simeon, and there he takes hold of this baby Jesus and begins to prophesy. And he says in the midst of his prophecy, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, Luke 2 and 35. He's referring to Mary. One of these days, because of this great life, your soul is going to be pierced through like a sword. And we'll see how that the fulfillment of that came about. Now, Mary had other children by Joseph, Mark chapter 6 and 3. The oldest child was by God and Mary, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There must have been a lot of stress with regard to the life of Jesus. One day, the events that would transpire whereby the heart and soul of Mary 
would be pierced. She's a faithful individual, faithful all the way to the end. I'm wondering why God chose Mary. Well, she was faithful and submissive to God. She's there at the foot of the cross. Now, we lose sight of Mary through the course of the ministry of Jesus. We'll see Mary at the point of Jesus at the age of 12. But we're going to lose sight of her until the end of his earthly life on the cross. And you'll remember the sad scene there. And that's when that sword did pierce her soul, when she saw her son hanging on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, as if he were not fit for either one. I heard two women weeping as down the hill they came, and one was like a broken rose, and one was like a flame. One said, Men shall rule the day their evil hands have done. The other said only through her tears, My son, my son, my son. It had to be a sad day. It had to be a heart-wrenching day when Mary at the foot of Golgotha would see that her son, an innocent one, the only begotten Son of God, is now suffering for the sins of the world. Luke chapter 2, verse 35, her soul was pierced through with a sword. So why or what can we conclude with regard to Mary? Why did he pick her? She was a godly woman. She loved and believed in God and His power. She was submissive to the divine will of God. She was brave and she was courageous. And she was faithful all the way to the end. And so Gabriel would say to her, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you, Luke 1, 32 through 33. God explains His plan to her, chapter 1, verse 35. This great announcement is given. First of all, in the city of Jerusalem, and now in this despised little village called Nazareth, Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth was going to have a child. And so Mary goes to her cousin and there visits with Elizabeth. And as she does, the child leaps in her womb when Mary comes in. And she begins by inspiration to praise God, while these two precious mothers discuss how God is using them for the salvation of mankind. She goes back to Jerusalem. There she has to face Joseph. Joseph was a just man, willing to put her away privately, quietly. But the angel of the Lord came to him and said, Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bear forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Joseph took Mary to be his wife, though he knew her not until she bare her firstborn son. And there they called him Jesus, a Hebrew word which means salvation. So appropriate, so appropriate. Now John the Baptist is born. Elizabeth gains the great birth that uh, uh, she now um, was promised. Zacharias comes in and all the family are excited about the fact that this elderly couple have had a son. It's always a happy time when a child is born, but especially when an elderly couple like this has a child. And everybody's asking the question, what will his name be? And they are saying, oh, his name will be Zacharias. And Elizabeth said, no, 
His name will be John. Well, this shocked everybody because there's nobody in their uh, family named John. And they turned to Zacharias and they said, Zacharias, what is his name going to be? And Zacharias motioned because he couldn't speak for a slate. And he wrote on the slate, his name is John. And immediately the angel of the Lord released his tongue, the Bible says, and he was able to speak again because now this great prophecy has come to pass. John is born. Jesus said of John in Matthew chapter 11, Of all men born of women, there's none greater than John. What a great man John was. But he also puts this in Matthew chapter 11, He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Well, what might first appear to be somewhat of an ambiguous type of passage becomes clearer to us when we understand that John lived and died before the establishment of the kingdom. You see, we are in a closer relationship with Christ because of being in his kingdom than even John had. I'd rather be who I am tonight as a member of the church of God, being a member of the kingdom of heaven, than to be a man even as great as John the Baptist was. I'd rather be who I am tonight than to be a Moses who gave the law by the finger of God or even a great man like Joseph. I'd rather be who I am tonight than to be a great prophet like Isaiah was because I'm in the kingdom of God tonight. All of these great events have transpired and come out to the point whereby you and I, by obedient faith, are added to the kingdom of Christ, the church of the living God. And Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, of all the men born of women, men born of women, there's none greater than John, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he. That shows the privilege that we have in being in the church of Jesus Christ tonight. In Luke chapter 2, there's a census that's being conducted. It was Augustus Caesar who enacted another tax and it required everyone to be registered. You were to go to your hometown at 7 or 6 B.C. at this time, and thus be registered for the tax. Well, Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, but yet his hometown is Bethlehem. And so he goes and carries his family to Bethlehem for the registration. And while there, there's a lot of people in Bethlehem, a lot of people in Jerusalem, because of the registration that's going on. And there was no place for them in the inn. Now, it doesn't say that they were so poor they couldn't rent a place in the inn. It only says that there was no place for them in the inn. So Jesus was born in a cave. Now, it's at this particular point in time that I want to make something clear again. And you've heard me talk about it before. These nativity scenes that you see out on the front yards around Christmas time. That ain't so. That's not the way it was. Everything's so nice and clean and clean straw laying in a manger with animals around and all of the wise men, the three wise men who were there. That's not the way it was at all. They didn't have stables like we have in this type of country. What they had were caves, grottos, and they would put their flocks in the caves, and that's where they would stay and it would be dark and it would be damp and it would smell 
And that's where the Son of Man was born, in the lowest of ways, in the meagerest of means. But let me tell you something. When he comes again, he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. When he comes again, he will become judge of all the world and judge of our souls. He was born in the meagerest of means in Bethlehem of Judea. Shepherds there listening to the angels as they begin to discuss this matter. People really didn't know about Jesus being born, except angels of glory knew about it. And there in turn, they're telling the shepherds who were tending their flocks out on the hillside about the wonderful thing that has taken place. I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, and the beginning is verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Please notice in that particular verse, verse 14, that it is describing the peace that they would have. Those who were pleased with God would receive that peace. That God was pleased with them and their lives that they lived. At any rate, by the eighth day, Jesus is circumcised. On the fourth day, he's taken to the temple for purification purposes, which is part of the uh, uh, ritual under the old law. <clears throat> it's Simeon who sees the Christ and holds him in his arms and thus prophesies about the matter which we studied a moment ago. Then in Matthew chapter 2, we have the visit of the wise men. Now, again, the Christmas carols and stuff do not do us justice here. It's not we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we travel so far. It is wise men. They are not kings. They are advisors. They are men who try to seek knowledge through science and mostly superstition. But somehow these magi, the Greek word is magoi, these magis, these wise men, had learned that there was a star to be followed and that God had revealed to them that the star was to be followed and the star would lead them to the place where the Savior would be born. And so they're following the star. They go to the city of Jerusalem and they're asking. But no one's really saying anything about the birth of Jesus. You might think, well, this would be a big deal. And everybody's talking about the Savior, but no one's talking about the Savior in this day and time, at least at this point. They actually go to Herod the king, and they begin to explain to him about the birth of Jesus the king. Herod wants to know, because Herod would certainly be interested in another king in the land. He's not interested in him as far as the Savior is concerned. He wants to put him to death. And so he tells the wise men, you go look it out, search it, come back and tell me where it is, that I can come and worship him also. Well, what Herod has done in Matthew chapter 2 is just lied to them. 
the Lord, as He revealed the place where Jesus was, revealed to them that they should go, not to Herod, but go back another way. Herod gets his wise men together. He said, now where is this baby supposed to be born? And they said, well, the Old Testament prophet said in Bethlehem of Judea, for thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are not the least among the princes of Israel, for out of these shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. It's got to be in Bethlehem. And so Herod now has all the little infant children killed and slaughtered because he wanted to kill the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. Now you see, Jesus did not become king. Jesus has always been king. When Jesus was born, he was king. Now Herod had to be appointed king. Herod was appointed by the political machine of Rome. And he wasn't a good king. He's one of the worst kings that you could ever imagine. So naturally, he's very covetous and jealous of the situation of being a king at the time. He wants to put Christ to death. But God was taking care of the child and the family and therefore prevented him from doing this dastardly deed. The fact of the matter is the wise men were wise because they were seeking Jesus. They were looking for him. Wise people still seek Jesus. Jesus said, Luke chapter 10 and 42, there's only one thing necessary, seeking the Lord. Paul on Mars Hill, Acts 17, 25 through 27, admonishes those heathen people to seek God. David prayed, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly, Psalm 63, 1. Moses encouraged Israel, seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4, and the verse is verse 29. You see, wise men still seek Jesus. By means of application, they're looking for Him. They're studying about Him, and they're submissive to His divine will. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 13, is the discussion that we're having with regard to the wise men, the magi. They sought Him with their heart and their soul, and they found Jesus, and they worshiped Jesus, and their lives were blessed because of that particular matter. More details are given in the pages of the Bible. How that Herod tried to seek the child, Joseph takes Mary and the baby and goes to Egypt. There in turn it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, out of Egypt thou hast called my son. When Herod died, his son Archelaus became king over Judea. And Joseph was told by the angel to take the child back, him and his mother. But when he learned that Archelaus was on the throne, he was fearful, and he went on into Galilee, avoiding the rule and the reign of Archelaus, this wicked Herod, which fulfilled another prophecy, which is talking about Jesus the Nazarene. He shall be raised in Nazareth. Prophecy after prophecy is being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now we have an age of silence. And there's very little that's told with regard to the life of Christ. Except we might say in Luke chapter 2. There's an indication or two about Jesus and his early life, but that's all we have. For example, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I like this particular point in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
You see, he's growing. He's growing just like everybody else grows. He becomes a young adult. I wish I knew the first words Jesus said, but God didn't reveal it. I wish I knew the first steps that he took, but God didn't reveal that. I wish I knew about Jesus and how he got along with his brothers and his sisters, but God didn't reveal that. What we do have, the curtain pulls apart at about the age of 12. There, these particular folks, very religious people going to Jerusalem, and in their efforts to go to Jerusalem and observe the uh, Passover, they're there, and uh, as they do, they head home, no doubt with a group of family members and everybody headed back north. And it was quite a time and quite a crowd because Jerusalem really swells at the time of the Passover. In this day and time, it's growing to the level of two, two and a half million people, if you can imagine that many people involved in this little ancient town. And so he gets lost. And they wonder, where is Jesus? What's happened? In Luke chapter 2, in about verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. As you read this particular scene from Luke chapter 2, Mary acts like a typical mother here. She says in verse 48, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. They had traveled one day. It took them three days to find him. And where did they find him? They found him in the temple. Now, don't misunderstand this particular scene. It's not that Jesus is taking over the class and trying to tell the professors a thing or two, which young students often try to do. But in typical fashion, they're asking and answering questions. And when these men see the wisdom and the knowledge of Jesus and his interest at the age of 12, 12 is an important time for a young Jewish boy. Now he becomes a man. Now he becomes a bene berit, a son of the covenant. And in so doing, he sits in the synagogue with the rest of the men. This is his day. Jesus, at the age of 12, is discussing and considering these important matters with regard to these great rabbis. And in so doing, he is confused at his mother's response. Because he says to her, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house, age 12? Now what he is literally saying, and what the, the text literally says is, I must be in the things of my father. And he's a little confused with regard to his mother's response. Don't you know I must be involved in the things of my father? Even at age 12, he understands his great mission and his great purpose. Now, sometimes people will ask the question, when did Jesus first know that he was the Son of God? Did Jesus always know that he was the Son of God, or did he learn that he was the Son of God at age 12? When did these matters particularly come upon him so that he now has a grasp of his great mission and his great purpose? 
Well, I can't answer that question. The Bible doesn't tell me. But the Bible tells me even at an early age, age 12, he knew that he had to be about his father's business. And now this wonderful passage that I made mention of just a moment ago is found for us in chapter 2 and verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It'll be 18 years now before we see Jesus again. And at that particular time, Jesus is ready to embark upon the great work of preaching salvation's message to mankind. And that's where we'll pick up next time, Lord willing, because of the limitations of our time. If you're not a child of God tonight, I hope you've been impressed with something about the life of Jesus, how important He really is to us, and He is the only begotten Son of God. It is because of Jesus that we have life everlasting. It is because of Jesus that we have this hope of eternal life. Because of obedient faith, by repenting of sin and confessing faith in Christ, we're baptized into Christ for the remission of sins and thus added to His kingdom. And I urge you to do that tonight. Accept Christ as the Savior of the body and become a part of the body by being obedient to the gospel. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?